the most common pattern you see, it's very rare for someone to be sitting too high unless they're in a time trial position normally. Uh, you do see that some encouraging. But I would say my sort of um, um, analysis of it is that most people sit a little bit too low and too far back. The Triathlon Show 232. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Phil Bird. Phil is a world-renowned bike fitter and physiotherapist who has spent 12 years with British Cycling and five years with Team Sky. And in this episode, we go deep into the topic of bike fitting, covering topics ranging from physiotherapy and injury prevention through power production and aerodynamics. So this is a really good, really, really good introduction and advanced course in bike fitting. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to Phil. I hope that you will learn a lot and I do think that you will. Before we get into the interview, uh, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Precision Hydration have developed a free online sweat test that you've heard me talk about before. And uh, that sweat test consists of a simple quiz of 10 uh, multi-choice um, answer questions. And uh, based on data from actual medical grade equipment that Precision Hydration uses for the real advanced sweat testing, the quiz results have been validated against that gold standard. So that when you go and take that quiz, you actually will get a pretty good estimate for how much sodium you, you actually lose in your sweat. So it's a great starting point. Uh, for for most about anybody and uh, a few people might benefit from doing the actual advanced in-person sweat testing but for most uh, the free sweat test is really only the only thing you need and then some experimentation on your own uh, either way i recommend starting with that free sweat test and uh, then uh, getting some electrolytes of course to try out in your training because what you are going to do on race day you need to be practicing in training so you can get electrolytes from precision hydration for 15 percent off with the promo code that triathlon show one five and big thanks to roca uh, Roka has recently launched a very exciting pair of new sunglasses. They are the Matador sunglasses and uh, this design and tech specification is uh, really, really exciting. Probably the most game-changing that Roka has done so far. Some of the cool features of these uh, sunglasses include the Geeko anti-slip technology, so they will never fall off your face. Sweat resistance, fingerprint resistance, fog resistance, etc. And really, really high-performing optics. Also, it's a good time to remind you that if you are planning to start swimming in the open water anytime soon and you're looking to upgrade your wetsuit, then Roka recently launched the Maverick MX, which is their max buoyancy wetsuit. And that's been another really top-rated new introduction from Roka this year. So I highly recommend you check that out. Go and have a look at roca.com forward slash TTS. On that page, you will get a 20% discount code valid for your entire order on roca.com. Without any further ado, here's my interview with Phil Burt. Welcome to that Triathlon Show, Phil. How are you doing today? 
Uh, as well as can be expected, uh, like all of us in this um, terrible situation at the moment, but I'm good. Ironically, the weather is sunny in the UK, which uh, is ironic that we can't go outside that much. <laughs> yeah, it, it is unfortunate. I, I guess one good thing for the listeners that are also in this unfortunate situation is that actually I've found that uh, a lot of people that previously have been too busy to, to do a podcast interview have now agreed to come on and do podcast interviews because they're uh, they're slightly less busy than than normal and uh, able to do these interviews so so that's been a positive uh, if uh, if it's only a slight one yes but uh, it's great to have you on can you start by just giving us a short bio or yourself who you are and what you do yeah sure i'm um i'm my name's phil burt um i i suppose in relevance to this podcast and triathlon i was the head physio at british cycling from 2006 until 2018 and um helped set up team sky and was head physio and consultant to them for a number of years um i since left and formed my own company which uh um, um, dabbles in the dark art of uh, bike fit, as it were, and positional services. Uh, we look after British triathlons, positional service, and all their great and wonderful athletes. Um, but we see uh, normal people um, from you know people just getting cycling to really avid amateurs all the way to professionals. And the other side of it is that we're involved in a lot of innovation, and you're going to see a lot of that coming out in the next couple of years um, as we partner with companies that we like to work with, where they're really taking seriously the um, improvement of certain things cycling itself only one third of triathlon i know is a uh, it's quite stuck in its ways in some ways and i often find the triathletes and the um, iron men and women who i see um, much more um, accepting of innovation so that's an interesting field um secondly so i'm a physiotherapist by principle but i suppose now i would call myself an ergonomicist you know someone who works at that interface between human being and machine and there's a huge amount of that obviously within cycling compared to say running when really you only have your shoe on the floor and um i'm an author i've written two books one called bike fit which is um because when I came to British Cycling, I, like many of your listeners, might have been didn't under, really understand bike positioning and how it related to in my field injury and then performance. Uh, there was only really only half a book written by uh, Dr. Andy Pruitt. He you know, specialised, but only half that book really looks as uh, fit. The other half was really all medicine. So that's been um, really well received, and it's great to hear people who find solutions through that book rather than going or they can't go for a bike fit or don't know where to go for a bike fit. And the second book was written. Um, my colleague Martin Evans is one of the best strength and conditioning coaches ever worked with, and that's a bit of a self-help guide as well about how to get strong, uh, well, uh, how to become better on the bike by doing stuff off the bike. Um, so so but, bo- both those books, including Bike Fit, are really directed at the the athlete. It's not about it's not a guide for bike fitters. Is is that correct? Correct, absolutely, and it's a really good distinction, Michael. Is, is that um, um, some of my colleagues in the bike thing world would consider bike fit fairly dumbed down. And I, and I always explain to them, I didn't write it for bike fitters because that market's about 800 people worldwide, maybe. So <laughs> a very small book. No, but it's really aimed at anybody who could, you know, you can just come from cycling, but you could be quite a lot into it. There's a different levels of depth in it there. But it really is a sort of like, you can, if you've got a problem with your bike or you want to improve your position, I want to understand maybe some of it, you can pick it up, read the relevant bit. And um, we, one of the best things I say this really truly is you, know, you get emails saying thanks this really really helped you know and it seems to be quite well reviewed and hopefully we're going to do I wrote that in 2012 never had I was at the London Olympic Games had my second child and tried to write a book for the first time don't advise anyone to do that in one year <laughs> it's very hard but um 
the second book, uh, we were looking at doing a second edition because like everybody, I know a lot more now. And that book was written whilst it's great to work at the very top of your sport. Um, and I, I'm absolutely, you know, feel blessed and honored that I've worked with some amazing athletes over that time. I think I now see, I now know more about the, uh, all of us are the average people, you know, because they have slightly maybe different issues. So we're looking to do a second edition of that book. And uh, I'm looking actually to see if we can do it in the next couple of months because it looks like I might have some time. Uh, yeah. Well, that, that would be another silver lining, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so with your background in physiotherapy, uh, I want to ask mm. about that. What, what do you think, what's the connection between physiotherapy and uh and cycling or, or bike fitting in, in general, like how, because it's not just you, I think a lot of bike fitters come from that physiotherapy background. How, how does it help you? Yeah. Create um, good a, bike fits for people. So that's a really good point. You can have different types of bike fits. Some shops will offer a bike fit. So you maybe arrive at your, the best frame for you, um, other places. But I think I would obviously say this, but medical led or physio led bike fit tends to be, um, um, some in some ways more successful because it, and my philosophy through bike fit, and we can go into this in more detail with some of the questions we're going to go through is that um the the rider is adjustable and the bike sorry the, the bike is adjustable and the rider is adaptable now which one the bike is almost infinitely adjustable um bear in mind being on the wrong size bike obviously and change it but you can always adjust that but the, many of us are less adaptable or more adaptable so that's where sometimes i think bike fitters end up when you're doing it from a formulaic or prescriptive point of view um there are many systems out there but they're all based upon uh, stage by stage and often numbers and um within there which all help but at some point you have to understand the human being in the equation that's what i find fascinating about it is every bike fit is different because you have the human being and all their history injury strength flexibility their drive their goals related to the bike they have and then i believe physio led bike fit is good because when you come up against that point where you go well why is that like that or why isn't this reacting the way i want it to you if you understand the body often the the the, the, or the person's body that's in front of you, then there'll be very good reasons for that. So then you can adapt and move to different areas. Um, I'll give you an example. Is that you know, somebody who um, <clears throat> people pedal in all different ways, and we don't really pedal. We walk on bikes because walking is what the brain's prepared for. Right? So people who say they can coach pedaling can do to a certain degree, but it's so fast and so intuitive that really, you know, the set that's where setup can be really it, it, interesting in manipulating to change the arena that the task happens in. So example, like someone has really stiff ankles or not much ankle range. Maybe they did a sport where they're younger and they haven't got much left and you don't know that as a bike fitter you don't you can't really assess it can't see it or can't accommodate it and you keep changing somebody's saddle height but for some reason the the ankling won't open up you know that you have to sort that's one area where you can say well look that isn't going to change so we need to manipulate another parameter here so i think uh, yeah that's why i think physiotherapists or chiropractors i don't know maybe osteopaths have a if you have an understanding of the human body and can assess the person in front of you and then the bike fit and my philosophy is um, all about what is the goal so obviously, if the goal is winning the Tour de France, you're going to go a lot further into discomfort and pain maybe than a lot of other people would do, you know, safely. If your goal is to, I want to start cycling and enjoy it with my kids, then the bike fit, the position of the bike changes massively. So I think I spend a lot of time in my process sitting down with someone at the beginning and understanding what they want out of it. 
Mm, yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. And it's a really interesting example with uh, the angle flexibility that you mentioned there. Uh, I wonder if you could mention like what would be the most common issue similar to that in terms of like the body movement or range of motion being restricted or or not being adaptable in certain ways that you see and what are sort of the parameters that you would adjust for those common issues sure sure and uh, so the main three injuries within cycling well first of all actually let's just start with um, cycling is a really good sport for most people who may be too broke to do other things like running or change of direction sports anymore because there are very few eccentric um forces within cycling so you see a lot of guys and girls cycling into their you know way into their 70s 80s but not many people running marathons that long some obviously some not but but that's the reason why that cycling is a lot more nicer to your body first thing anyone does um i always call this the oxymoron of cycling is that the first thing anyone does after a major knee operation is they they normally get on a static bike to start rehabilitation but the most common cycling injuries are knee injuries <laughs> so so while cycling is good for knees uh, it's also the most common injury um it, it goes knee back and shoulder if we and if we just went for those three very quickly i think um knees basically the reason why cycling is um, somewhat injurious to knees at certain points is again you're in a st- if you're set up in a bad position that can load the knee the knee's really the only joint left down the wind if you look at it if you're on fixed pedals your foot's locked into a carbon fiber cycling shoe so the ankle and foot haven't got to do too much you you're sat down so your hip and back are pretty <laughs> all right and then your knees transferring all this force to the pedal so if that position or setup isn't quite right then it can lead to loading much more than say going out for a run where you're changing position constantly and loading through different joints so having said that if you get that position right then it's very good for knees so the things i always look at people look to to address knee pain is um you know looking at your um saddle height your saddle setback you know trying to get those into what i call the, the optimal window um i think pedal choice um float setup you know if you walk like a duck so in other words, if you walk with your toes out and heels massively in, a no-float fixed pedal float system <laughs> is very much going to lead to your you know, lateral structures tying up and you need to have knee pain in the end. So um, pedal systems that have more float, so speed play, for example, allow you to go wider and let you drop your heels in. They can be really accommodating for those people. Uh, and insoles play are an important part in cycling. They can really help support someone's foot structure and uh, often lead to re- resolution of knee pain. So I think um, often people focus on the knee, but if you look down to the bottom, what's he engaging with, the pedal and the shoe setup, and then up to the top, that what's it working off the base, which is the saddle, then you can often deal with those. Uh, with, the, with regards to the saddle height and uh, and the forehead position, is mm-hmm. it more common to, what would the typical directional change be if somebody comes to you with knee pain? Is it more common to have it too high or too low and so on? Yeah, that's a really good question again, Michael. Um, so uh, having been out there now for two years and done, I think we've done about 450 bike fits in that time, um, uh, plus of normal people, what I can't, the, the most common pattern you see, it's very rare for someone to be sitting too high unless they're in a time trial position normally. Uh, you do see that some occurring, but I would say my sort of um, um, 
analysis of it is that most people sit a little bit too low and too far back. And often the too far back is a is an interesting one because they're trying to maybe accommodate reach uh, or trying to get away from a problem. So normally, most commonly, I move people up and forward. And if you think about it, if you get up and above the bottom bracket and above where you're trying to deliver the forces, that often helps out the knee. So often think people end up with knee pain because they're trying to accommodate other things. For example, maybe they're not used to the saddle being so high and into them and they feel a bit uncomfortable so they try and make it more comfy and in making their you know the saddle pain more easier and comfortable they actually end up challenging the knee more or it could be yeah so that's my you know with saddle four after I, my general direction is that and and often quite successfully is moving them up and forward the thing i would only add to that is that i have a very accurate measuring machine that tells me where someone is within the fit window and I, the last thing i wanted to do is any of your listeners to just automatically bung up their saddle height you know and end up um, giving themselves an injury but that's the general direction i go in yeah mm, yeah and what about uh, shoulders and the uh, yeah. back that you also mentioned so, yes yeah, so shoulder pain so shoulder injuries are quite common in cycling mainly because of the traumatic nature because if you come off your bike it's very common to injure your collarbone but i i still include it because it's often grouped as shoulder and neck and a lot of people get a bit of neck pain because we're, cycling has this positional um gives you for example a stiff lower back when you're cycling it's because you're sat in, in a range hip flexion for a long time so if we go down to the back first of all often when you get off the bike especially in a time trial position uh, the longer you go of course you often feel a bit stiff in your low back and that's because your hip flexors which uh, one part of that the psoas inserts onto the bottom three vertebrae so if we me and you jumped in, a, in an old-fashioned very small mini and drove all the way from uh the you know <laughs> the top of africa i don't know the top of britain down to the bottom you know long journey and we got out the car we wouldn't be surprised to be a bit stiff would we and that's cycling you, you cycle in one position really only your, your limb and lower limbs are moving and the rest of it is positional positional imposition on your body so that's why we can sometimes get a bit of stiff back now the, with the low back pain what an easy tip for your listeners with that often i often find is that they're making their back do all the flexion to get the hand the, the show um the upper body and the hands to the handlebars because sometimes people ride with their nose of the saddle either um, at zero degrees or even nose up Now, the ability to rotate the pelvis forward can really, really help out that low back pain that most people suffer from because all of a sudden you take out all the stretch from it. So if you just, um, a quick tip is always check, I don't think any saddle should ever be more than, it should be either level or nose down. And a, a few degrees nose down can often just alleviate some back pain. Now, you have to be careful there because too far nose down, you can chuck a load of weight on the front end. But that's something that people can play around with and it can really make um, a lower back pain disappear automatically of course some people take back problems onto the bike that's a different issue with the shoulder neck i think obviously you could cut fall off is an obvious reason for that you know you fracture your collarbone but the the neck pain is normally and shoulder pain that comes from um just cycling itself can often be put down to how uh, how the the engine room the saddle height and the back end is relating to the front end so quite you know often people i often more commonly see people with that problem who would like to look like mark cavendish but unfortunately they're not mark cavendish so you know they're not going to be able to handle that very aerodynamic low down position to start with and they go for much more too big a um, back end to front end drop a, a consideration though i think a lot of people miss is um handlebar width you know and a really easy way to work out your ideal handlebar width for me is amongst my lab i have amazing 
pieces of technology, retool, uh, saddle pressure, you know, digital devices to measure your sit bones. But it's a shoulder work fine for me. This little um, tip really works well. It's where if you set yourself up on your turbo or rollers and look in the mirror um, and you look at where your hands are on the hoods, basically the the middle of your thumb between your finger on the top of the hood should really, you know, should go right through the middle of your shoulder joint at the top. And often people are on two wider, wider bars. No, very rarely do I ask someone to go wider. I know you always shrink handlebar with great success for comfort. And that increased handlebar width, of course, increases the reach. So it increases the distance to there. So often that can explain uh, what is probably I call the fourth most common thing, which is numb hands or hand pain. Um, so examining handlebar width is a really interesting um, thing. We've done it a lot of reasons for aerodynamic ones, but it's quite um, um, useful to look at for those um people who shuffle with shoulder and neck pain it's how low are your handlebars at the front and are they the right width all right yeah great uh, that's uh, really insightful so let's uh, talk about the bike fit process that uh, that you go through when you when you work with a client yeah sure um so my um i'll be uh, you'll you'll get this from this interview i'm incredibly honest and transparent my definition of an expert is somebody made who's made a lot of mistakes in a small area and that is definitely me in the um, sort of in the bike fit area when and when i looked when i look at somebody um my approach is there is no one ideal position there is um there is a bike fit window and so that's a for example, if we just take saddle height, there is the lowest it should be and the highest it should be for you. And as long as you're within that, you'll be fine in terms of injury and probably, you know, pretty optimal for performance in producing power and comfort. People's bike fit windows change depending on something I call, are you a micro adjuster or are you a macro absorber? So that's the terminology that I came up when I was sitting in my physio room at British Cycling, trying to work out how to write the book. Um, why do some? Why is bike fit and position and equipment so important to some people, and yet so unimportant to others? And I use an example of that being that um, I always remember it's in my book. Ben Swift once came to see me. He's a with cyclist with Team Ineos was Team Sky. I looked after him for many years. And Ben puts, he's one of those guys, he has to put a lot of effort in off the bike to keep his body fit on the bike. And some of your listeners might start to resonate with this. If something's that slightly out of kilter for him or out of um, alignment, then he will get an injury or pain or problem. And he once came with four bikes, um, Pillarona Dogmas, and swore to God, one of the saddle heights was wrong on it to the mechanics. They were measuring it all the time, saying it's the same as the rest. I measured it using our technical kit and they were all within two millimeters of each other, which basically means the same. Um, it took a long time. He was still frustrated. And at one point I just asked him, is that saddle new that you've got there? And he said, yes. And literally his saddle height felt too high for him because he had a new saddle that didn't give as much. So he's what I would call a micro adjuster. And the most famous micro adjuster was apparently Eddie Merckx, who went out with an Allen key in his um, back pocket and changed his position, saddle position, uh, almost daily, but was still quite successful. At the opposite end of this scale, you have Geraint Thomas, who I call a macro absorber. Now, Geraint is an amazing cyclist, but he has to have hardly do anything off the bike to stay on it. He just adapts to anything. He adapts to training really well. You know, I think, I think me and you could train him to win the Tour de France because we set him a plan and he does, he just goes away and does it, gets strong, gets better. Yeah. Those, those, most of us have to work really hard at it. And when we do something, sometimes we get injured or don't have quite the response we want, but that applies to position as well. And that 
apparently once he rode a lot of one stage on the wrong spare bike and didn't even realize. Now, that doesn't mean he was optimal. It means he might have had to work a lot harder, but it didn't break him. So my approach to bike fit is, are you a micro adjuster or are you a macro absorber? Where is your bike fit window? Obviously, the macro absorbers bike fit windows are bigger, but we want to be more you know, in a good position. And I use... Um, Free, free, the free pillars of fit principle, which I worked out with Chris Borman. And uh, basically, that is the, the free pillars of fit. We have to consider aerodynamics, power, and comfort, stroke, sustainability. So, those three pillars are most important. Now, if you think about it, if you're Bradley Wiggins coming to see me, or one of the world's best triathletes, or Ironman, and you want to win, win the world championships, you want a very aerodynamic, powerful position. So, those two pillars are what we're going to focus on and what we're going to prioritize within the fit we're going to get those over and we need some sustainability of course you can't be brilliant being aero but if you're not sustainable then you can't stay in that aero position comfort less so for example i'll give you an example a four minute team pursuit team pursuit to the olympics um doesn't have to be comfortable because it's only four minutes long just has to be sustainable compare that to i want to do 110 miles ironman position you definitely need a lot of sustainability in there and then take it to the other end of somebody who just wants to be a recreational cyclist and enjoy cycling Obviously, the importance, the height of that comfort pillar is much more important than the other one. So what I tend to do is skew my bike fit process to that, that and the goal. That's why establishing the goal of what somebody wants is the most important, you know, so that we can prioritize those things. And always remember the bike is adjustable and the rider is adaptable. So if you're looking at a 75-year-old man who is what he is, and he isn't going to be able to do Pilates and yoga and change himself, but has a knee injury, we really need to manipulate all the things we can manipulate around equipment, shoes, insoles, bike position, because he's not going to change. Compare that to a young and up-and-coming rider who's 16 and um, has some aspects of their musculoskeletal development that are, I would say, not optimal. There's real value in putting time into them. So, with my bike fit process, there are some things that you need to go away and change about your bike. Some things we change about your bike in the session, but sometimes you might have a bit of homework to do and go away yourself to try and make your cycling more um, uh, enjoyable. Yeah, and in terms of that uh, sort of uh, adapting to to the to the position to the new position, how much is that something that uh, that is achievable? Because that's something that I think that we here as uh, outside observers. A spectrum some uh, some fitters say that well it will take you a lot of work to adapt to this position so they're leaning heavily into that power production and, and aerodynamics and expect you to do the work and be able to adapt which uh, mm. you might or might not and how much do you think that you actually have to be there once the fit is done and uh, like basically have it all set already and, and not actually adapt at that point in time to to the fit if you understand the question i'm not sure i'm making it very clear <laughs> I think I, I think it, it, it. How long does it take to adapt to a new position? Yeah, that, so exactly. I believe, and it, I, it's something I didn't mention there, but my belief in evolution, not revolution. So I think some people, going back to the micro absorbers, macro adjusters, you know, some if you're Gerald Thomas, you probably give him a, a you give him a much more aggressive position, he'll just cope with it. But most people will take a bit of time. So for, the, the classic is getting more and more aero, you know, which generally at first people tend to get lower at the front. 
you generally experience more neck pain, back pain, discomfort, and moving in and out of that position. So it does take some time to get better. If you think about time trialing on a time trial bike, it is like painting the ceiling in your house. You know, you have to extend your neck from a very low down position. So a lot of people get quite a lot of discomfort. So I would believe in evolution. And what a lot of people can leave is if we establish what the, the, the end position is, and then we can go there in small stages. And maybe your re- listeners can take away from this. You know, you don't, it'd be unwise to drop your front end on your road bike by 30 mils of the spaces underneath the thing just to slam that down to expect your body not to give you any uh, feedback on that (laughs) it would be um on on on, i'll be surprised you know but if you said look if i do two weeks riding with 10 mil less and i've got no problems i feel i'm okay yeah stiff neck first of all but i've got used to it and then do another 10 mils I think you just got to give your body and that's where recognizing who you are, a micro adjuster or a micro absorber or somebody who generally takes time to adapt to things. That's where position is much more sensitive. You know, I would always advocate even the micro absorbers do it in, in a, in at least in a, a systematic way where you've got a plan. Um, so big changes really should come along. The only caveat to that, I would say, for example, I would say is with the engine room in terms of saddle height and, um, um, set up and relation to crank length i've got no problem changing crank length in one go because that generally only leads to good things you know so you don't don't really have to adapt to that but the front end and um getting lower is normally a physical challenge to musculoskeletal so i would say it takes some time to adapt to that and you might have to work on that for example um doing uh, one really good thing if you're for time trialing is making sure that your thoracic spine so the middle of your back is as mobile as possible um with your particular listeners in triathlon of course you have that um cross demand of swimming and what we often see is that some people may struggle with time trialing have tight lats or latissimus dorsi from the swimming now if you can get those um looser more optimal that really helps because it enables your shoulder position to be much more flexible when you're down on the pads, for example. So you can, there's things that you can do to yourself to help that adaptability and how long it takes to get used to that position. And is flexibility in general something that uh, has a lot to do with whether you are a micro-adjuster or micro-absorber or, and what are some other sort of factors that might play into in which, which category you belong to? Well, yeah, and uh, um, I'm not one of those physios who gives out people millions of exercise to try and uh, make themselves more. more. Our flexibility is, it is changeable, and you know, too much too, too much restriction somewhere will definitely lead to problems. But it, in cycling, it's um, you know, you just have to be flexible enough really to com- complete the task. You know, so you don't have to have the, the, for example, incredibly flexible hamstrings or anything. But I think there's a lot of genetics in there. And uh, in terms of, yeah, we are who we are, born with our uh, biomechanics and our amphrometrics, you know. But also, what, yeah, most people, those who aren't pros, what the biggest factor is, what do they do for the rest of the week? So if you drive a desk all week, um, an IT consultant, and then your position after one week of having your, you know, your, your training camp and cycling and running and swimming is so much more better. Your optimal position is so much better than it would be at the end of a week, long week in the office. Cause that postural imposition of sitting, which is for many people these days sitting at a desk working computers, is the, the thing that makes us less flexible. So manipulating that, I think what we're often trying to do is jump between the two and how do we get between that? Yeah. Um, doing, targeting those core groups of muscles and exercises that help you with that can really help yeah um crank length you you mentioned that uh talk about that a little bit more what's your what's your take on it um so um 
crank length is in cycling there seems to be quite often a huge amount of um myths that are held onto and people will not let go of um the research is really clear now that crank length in submax cycling is not relevant to power production unless you go as short as 80 or as high as 320 so if we take that away and say and say okay so it doesn't affect power production all it does is really change your gearing then that's a real big parameter for a lot of people to um, use to make their bike position better so i'll give you an example is that um, when you're becoming more lower and lower at the front end of a time trial position, one thing that happens is that your hips become more and more closed. Your thighs get closer and closer to your chest, which can affect your ability to breathe uh, for your diaphragm. Your knees may get closer to the um, arm pads, and it, it just becomes a whole lot more challenging. Now, if we accept that cramp length isn't important to power production, then we say, well, okay, we've gone lower at the front. Why don't we make that easier by opening up the hip? So let's take you from 175 all the way down to 165, which was what all the men in Team Pursuit at the British team rode in Rio for the Team Pursuit 165. Sounds huge, you know, from big, tall guys who used to ride that, or Bradley Wiggins did. And if you go from 175 to 165, you're giving so much more range back to the hip that you can actually go even lower at the front if that's what you need to do and become. And it, if you think about it like this, it's um, my analogy that I try to get people to understand this is you don't want to be that duck that's sitting on the water, but they're flapping crazily underneath. You want to be like the smallest movement possible. Of course, you know, decrease the crank length and also top dead center gets further away from you in the pedal stroke and the bottom dead center becomes uh, comes closer. So you have to adjust your saddle height bit, but basically it's a smaller circle. So that's more error in itself. It's less kinematically challenging, so less low total loading. It means you can maybe get up and over that bottom bracket more, um, which means you can bring the biggest muscle group in the body or the strongest, the glute max, more into the equation. And um, the analogy I most successful use in explaining that to clients who come in is if I, Michael, gave you a very large gym box right now in front of you and said, you can either jump on that gym box here or a very small one uh on the other side i'm going to give you a hundred euros or pounds it doesn't matter which one you jump on a hundred times which one would you jump on yeah yeah it's uh, it on. sounds like a no-brainer when, when you put it, it like that and, and so that's yeah there you go so that's that's shorter crank length all it does is change your gearing so if we if we, we, we take that through for the listeners 175 down to 170 same gear what happens your cadence goes up so all you do is you end up to maintain cadence. If you want to do that, you just put it into harder gear. Very few people will run out of gears. <laughs> so, so, and I have, um, but that's an error. That, that's a performance um, alteration of crank length. I find it, I've used uh, manipulation of crank length to solve people's knee problems. Again, imagine the big gym box, small gym box. Guess which one's going to hurt your knee more if you've got a knee injury. And then yeah. the other one is um, it also decrease, can help people with saddle injuries as well. Um, so people who bounce around the saddle and it's not because they're on the wrong width or height or so, it can really, you know, if you make the task underneath them easier, it can actually, well, it does actually decrease total peak pressure at the saddle because your one leg isn't having to reach further away and the other one rock up. So, yeah, for me, it's a, um, it's a great um, um, parameter to help manipulate and achieve good outcomes both performance wise and comfort wise yeah that it sounds very convincing <laughs> i gotta I gotta say <laughs> um with regard to the balance between power production and aerodynamics how much is that a give and take do you find oh very much so and again a really good question i think my philosophy is i start with the back end which is you know there's no point being aero if you can't pedal hard 
because you're not going to go very fast. You know, so having said that, I know I completely understand why we always end up talking about error because it's free speed. You know, if you become way more aerodynamic, you, you literally, once you're up to a certain speed, it's one for one with power, you know, so you might as well. And, you know, you can achieve amazing drops in CDA with, with athletes around their position and kit. And that would take a long time to find in training. Having said that, 90% of your listeners have so far to go before they would ever need to go in a wind tunnel, if you ask me. <laughs> it would, that, that wind tunnel stuff is the fine tuning at the end, if you ask me. People would, you know, I, I would say, first of all, you need to get your saddle position in a place where you can effectively pedal very hard, sustainably for a long time, and then accommodate that saddle height and position within the aerodynamics of the front. For my mind, it doesn't work from the backwards to the uh, from from the front backwards. You know, having a really low position where your hips are too tight and you can't even engage your glute max because you're sitting too low far back isn't going to work. So get the back end right is my philosophy, and then we work on the front. Ironically, most people remember we said need to go up with a saddle height and forward. That effectively drops your front end <laughs> compared to the rest of you. So it, it is in what some ways already making you more error, um, and it is a real is a real payoff. But I think. That's why uh, crank length is important because it helps us get people in better pedaling positions and then accommodating the, you know, let's face it, it's mostly lower down at the front. We could get into the whole shoulders and shrugging and stuff like this, but that tends to be a bit more personal and hard to explain um, without actually seeing the person. Um, but most people will get better there. And here's the big thing I, I would like people to take away, Michael, is that um, the bike industry will kill me for saying this, but they have all the marketing budget. The bike itself is about 9 to 10% of your frontal area. So having a more aero bike is probably the least effective way of trying to reduce your your front your CDO, your frontal pin. You, on the other hand, are nearly 89 to 90% of the frontal area. That's why skin suits work really well. <laughs> it's also why uh, position is really important because if you can minimize that frontal area as much as possible, you will go faster through the air. So I think people should focus on themselves, not so much their kit in the in their kit aerodynamicity, but the kit that goes with them to facilitate your position. So example, the right crank lengths, the right shoes, you know, uh, the right cockpit that makes it more comfortable. And you know what I would say with the most important thing in aerodynamic choice and power choice is saddle choice because the ability to get in a low but powerful position is the ability normally to rotate the pelvis forward. And that's why we have different saddles for um, road cycling compared to um, time trialing where, you know, I think Kona, 50% of the saddles there will probably be an ISM split nose saddle. And that saddle supports your pubic rami, the front of your pelvis much better. That's why it works really well there. Doesn't work so well on the road position because it's not designed to do it. Now, um, if you if you can't rotate your pelvis forward because your saddle position or your saddle nose is up or you've got the wrong shape saddle or wrong way, that's something that you're just gonna you're gonna spend a lot of time trying to work around. So I actually put saddle choice right up there as one of the most important things if you're looking to get a really aerodynamic yet powerful position. So let's talk about saddles. Uh, how how do you find the right sa- saddle for for you? I mean, that can be a, a bit of a, a mysterious uh, treasure hunt, I guess. Oh, it, it really is. Um, <clears throat> I have um, clients come and see me, and they literally walk in with a bag of nine to ten saddles. You know, and uh, it really it's not all about the saddle is one thing. So um, saddle people have saddle issues. That is, it's not always about the saddle, but um, the right saddle, basically I think you've got to consider four or five things really. 
shape is really important. Um, and shape is basically split down into the, there's either T shape where the bottom of the T is supporting sit bones and that's a road cycling position, or there's more of the sort of like V shaped saddles or split nose saddles, which are more TT supporting. I think, first of all, if you go through like the Filbert process of bike fit, you know, what is your goal? So I want to be able to ride the road like that straight away tells you you don't need a time trial style, so you can weed that one out. The second is width, which is a little bit more harder to assess yourself. Saddles generally come in three different whips, one three eight, one four uh, three or five different manufacturers, and then one five five. There are some one six fives out there now. Women generally need a little bit wider saddle, but not all because they have wider pelvises for childbirth. Um, but I've seen men who love a really wide saddle, and women who would love a really narrow saddle. It is quite hard to assess that. I use a thing called the digital sits bone device uh, through retool, which is really helpful in assessing that. But saddle width isn't everything. Just consider it maybe if you're having problems. The problems I associate with saddle width are um, often if the saddle's too wide, you really bounce around on the saddle because you're trying to reach the pedals either side and working around it. And too narrow, often people tend to fixate and stay really rigid and can't really move about the saddle because they're just really hugging the one bit they can find a bit of support from. But it is a really difficult subject to talk about remotely. I think length of saddles is interesting. Um, the the take up these days with shorter nose saddles, so uh, the Specialized Power Mimic, the uh, Physique Argo, uh, there are loads of them out there. That, that's a real new thing to saddle um, market at the moment. And um, compared to, say, like what was, and is still a very popular saddle, the Physique Arioni, which is about 30 centimeters long, these shorter saddles seem to work better for some people. And one of the theories is that um it gives you less choice of where to sit so if you know if you're not really adept at sitting in one place um and move around the saddle too much so if you have a shorter saddle then and you get it in the right place then uh and it's supporting you right then that that problem is taken care of so apparently you don't see so many pros using the shorter saddles because uh if you're in the tour de france got a long stage you need different positions on that saddle so they'll move around a longer saddle get right on the rivet move to the back for climbing so on and so forth so length can be important i think cut out or not cut out is really for men if you have any penile numbness um at all or anything like cutouts can really work well that's because the um, pedendal nerve goes down the middle of the penis is the most common thing to compress or irritate to get that and cut outs can literally change people's lives with that um cutouts have generally been made for men but a lot of women find some relief for there but we, we, you know, there's a lot of innovation coming around with women's saddles i'm doing so myself at the moment the specialized mimic has a bit of a softer nose to help with them women have a lot of different presentation there in the undercarriage compared to men a lot more variety so it's a bit harder for them to find sometimes the saddle that works for them and lastly i would say you know the position because you can have the best saddle in the world It'd be the ideal one for you, but if it isn't in the right place with the right tilt, with the right set and right height, how would you know it's working? You know, it can't work. So once you get the right saddle, it's um, spending a bit of time and effort and getting it into the right place. Yeah, yeah. And this next question, if you don't want to answer it, that's fine. But uh, are, are there any saddles that you, like a, a select few that you think that work really well for a lot of athletes and in particular if we talk about the time trial crowd here that are most well actually let's pick a, a couple of road saddles as well because we have saddle uh, cyclists in the audience so just a few saddles that you think are generally very good knowing fully well that it's going to be individual at the end of the day yeah that's a good point uh, I'm, i'm completely independent and brand neutral so sorry but um the saddles that i um 
there's all the major brands out there seem to do fairly well, like the Bond Trader, you know, Physique, uh, Specialized, um, you know, Sally Italia. You look at those ones, um, they're all doing really well. I, I think with in time trial, we make a really good point there. The split nose ISM works really well for some people. Um, you see a lot of people though have to zip tie the front of it, so width is an issue with it sometimes, you know. Um, and so I can understand that. A lot of people, you're right, it's so individual. Um, a lot of people will time trial on a specialized mimic, for example, because it has a soft nose, and not just women as well, men. Um, I really do think that's cushioning there. And what's really coming about, both specialized and physique have announced their new saddles, which are using the 3D printed carbon nylon technology, which basically, although I, it's not custom at the moment, it's this new sort of weave stuff, which really, really has the potential to move saddle maybe comfort and cushioning to a new area but so i find that those saddles uh, there's also a brand um the saddle pressure measuring device that i use jubimized um they uh, produce their own range of saddles which uh, go down well for people um i suppose i have to be a little bit careful in that i i, I have to michael be honest with you that obviously my basis is perform based upon performance and then people who, who have problems you know so a lot of people out there might get on with the saddle that the bike comes with you know and i wouldn't know because i never see them <laughs> but uh but the, it is a good point i think those and one thing i would say to your listeners is that i don't think necessarily spending a lot more money gets you a better saddle often the more money is associated with weight <laughs> you know so um it might be better to do your homework and look into it best thing in the world would be i would of course i would say this is maybe go and see a bike fitter when you've decided on a saddle or a couple of saddles that you think are right for you but if a, if you've got a good local bike shop with good knowledge, with people in there who might be able to ask you a few simple questions, like I've mentioned there, points and that, nothing beats maybe that little bit of interpretation rather than blindly buying off the internet. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And going back to the bike, uh, and uh, not speaking of aerodynamics here, but actually the bike fit and the geometric setup uh, of course you need to be on the right size of the bike but is there a difference in that certain bikes might work better for an individual than others just because of slight differences in geometry or is all of that pretty much always solvable by just maybe uh, purchasing some additional components like a stem of a different length and so on it, again a really good question um so most, yeah, unless you go to bespoke, you're never going to get anything made that's ideal for you. I think what, what, what the most common issue I see over frame sizing and then people who think they're on the wrong size frame or have their setup really wrong is often human beings are how sometimes have, we, some of us have longer legs or shorter legs and, and, and then longer torsos and shorter torsos. So, but the bike, bike manufacturing industry makes bike sizes for people on the normal distribution curve so if you imagine that nice little curve with a big peak in the middle they're making it for the 70 percent in the middle not the people the outliers so often i find the people who are struggling with position um at most brands geometry is very similar but then it, you're absolutely right it's buying those stems around so people who for example have long legs short backs generally struggle with reach because they have to buy a big enough frame to get the saddle height but then they may struggle to get to the front a little bit and that's where yeah, buying a shorter stem like an 80 or 90 can really help accommodate them and handlebar work really help. On the opposite side, um, shorter legs, longer back, great for time trialing, but often they want much more reach in the bike. So yeah, the whole stack and reach thing is the is the big thing around that. And on that, you know, generally, if 
for example, specialized tend to be a little bit lower on stack and longer in the top two, so a little bit more aggressive. Whereas, and I'm generalizing here now because, of course, all the bike companies produce so many different ranges of bikes. You know, that the, 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 the really most of them have got most geometric points covered in their different ranges. But then, a, like a giant's a little bit higher at the front, has a bit more stack, you know, and a, a little bit shorter top tube. So it might help someone who has less flexibility and get into the handlebars. Having said that, Specialized will make you a gravel bike now that will do that, you know. So it'll be the, the, the differences have got a lot less over the last 15 to 10 years, if you ask me, Michael. Like everybody's in a much more closer sort of space now. So you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's I think people don't spend enough time um, thinking about the things that they can specify on the bike. So your crank length, stem length, handlebar width. If you just thought about them before you bought the bike, it's a lot more economical to spec that at the beginning with the ones who let you change that for free. Yeah, that's that's excellent advice. Really excellent. Mm. Um, going to aerodynamics, then, uh, what, what are some of the things uh, we've mentioned some of them already? But but some of the things that you can uh, you can do to get yourself as aerodynamic as possible, both when it comes to your position, but also when it comes to uh, equipment choices and uh, and potential upgrades. Well, first of all, I think uh, uh, yeah. Um, Again, I would say this, but equipment upgrades. Okay, so I would just think about this. Um, I think helmet choice, if you're time trialing, which most of your candidates will be, is really, really important. But literally for visibility up the road so that you can don't have to – a helmet that makes you extend your neck even further than it's already making you is going to make your, your position more comfortable. So visibility up the road. Um, and then the tail of it, you know, if that's forcing you to put your head down, then you have to extend your neck more. So that having helmet fit, once you've got a really good aerodynamic position, is really important, finding the right helmet to accommodate that. And you see big changes in people's CDA or sustained CDA, you know, sustained aerodynamics and when they're comfortable there. Um, I'll go back to my previous point. Uh, rather than talking about e- – people always, human beings, want to always find the easiest path and whip. So um, that's why you find a lot of marketing, and that's why you're probably asking me the question is, what can I buy instantly and make me more aero? <laughs> and I would say that th- there's only one other thing, really, would be your saddle choice that can make you more aero. If it enables you to rotate forward further and sustain and be comfortable um, putting pressure through the front of your pelvis for longer, then you'll be more aero. Other than that, I would work on yourself as much as I could, you know? So your mm-hmm. flexibility, you know, if you're more flexible in your hamstrings, in your lats, in your thoracic spine and your neck, then you will time trial better for longer. So unlike road cycling, where I don't think you have to put that much work into position or off the bike work, I think in time trialing, we used to, I, we worked out an algorithm at BC where we would target, assess certain muscle groups and um, restrictions and certain people would have to work on those harder because they just, you know, they're, that if they do that, then they can stay in that position. If you can imagine like this, imagine like, you know, I often think of it, if you've got a very, very narrow bandwidth, so you've got tight lats, a really knackered neck, you know, um, really tight hamstrings, and you've got this position, you might be able to hold it for five, 10 minutes, but then if it becomes uncomfortable, you're going to shift out of it, and then you instantly lose all, all your aerodynamic gains that you've gained for the last five minutes, maybe. If you're, if you're constantly shifting around in the saddle because of the pain, like, but generally if you widen your base, that's why a lot way to look at it is just widening your base and everybody some people can do that more than others but if you just make sure your base is as wide as it can be in other words you're flexible and as functionally strong as you can be i think generally taking that forward onto the bike means that you can perform better for longer so i would say investing in yourself you know um, i've seen great results with people where 
invest in things like one-on-one Pilates. I say one-on-one because if you go to a Pilates class and you're one of 30, you're literally getting one-thirty of the input as a one-on-one. So that's expensive often. But if you've got a good Pilates instructor or good yoga instructor or, you can, or just good movement specialist, you know, you might be a physiotherapist or sports coach, you know, if you invest in that and they identify things that you can work on that are your little flaws or, you, or the, rather than seeing them as flaws, the things that you can do better, then if you work on that, that will give you far more back than the latest lighter carbon crank in my mind. Yeah, that's uh, that's good advice again. Uh, and you do some aerodynamic testing and assessments, don't you? Can you can you describe a bit what you do uh, in in that realm? Well, I I do and I don't in some ways. Yeah, we, 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 our lab is more based upon um, the. Um, the overall comfort of the position to achieve that so a lot of people will come to us after been to a wind tunnel uh, or been for an error assessment and they often come in and say um i i got this new error position i can't hold it <laughs> and well and then we accommodate that and we we actually do that in a joined up way with some people you know because ultimately if you do want to really want to know what uh, a proper aerodynamic session you need to go to a wind tunnel or and so with someone like everything is that they're um, you know, I use a piece of kit called a retool, you know, and that my retool different kit is different to someone else's, you know, <laughs> just because it's called retool doesn't mean it's brilliant. It depends on the handler. And I think the aero fit, aerodynamics depends on the person assessing your aerodynamics and what tool they're using. The ultimate is a, is a proper wind tunnel. But again, if you go in there, and I've done a lot of that over my years here with BC and Scott, is that you can only really properly assess, I would say, in a day, which is going to be expensive, two to three positions because if you really want to get out of what you call the noise you know the changes that just a a change makes you know you go baseline position one baseline position two baseline position baseline back you know if you really want to do it properly it's a very expensive very labor-intensive process and that's why i say maybe getting hoovering up all those things first of all the low-hanging fruit so am i flexible enough am i strong enough have i got the right kit is much more important maybe before you go to that but we use um, a very simple thing uh, you know um the bio racer sort of frontal area camera the cda can give you a picture it isn't true cda i have to say because obviously air is not flowing over you <laughs> so it gives us an idea and i um, i use my experience of what aero looks like and i'm very honest with people about that you know yes you're not going to have a but but we we have great success in making people go faster if that makes sense <laughs> Yeah. Do, do you follow the uh, technology development in the CDA sensor space? And is yeah. it something that you can, can talk about? Um, I've, 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 I've seen it coming through, yeah, and some people are starting to use that. That's really interesting, and it's great. It's um, I think what we have to do is understand there's so many parameters at play there, you know, when you go out with some of that kit. So it's understanding what that data really means and um, how reliable it is and how repeatable, if that makes sense. Because that's the real thing is that, you know, there's so many factors that can, in, in, yeah, you know, um, when we were do, when you do, for example, use that same technology within a velodrome, you have to put so much information in there about, you know, even the, the pressure within the tires, the weight of the rider, the humidity, the airflow and things like that. So I think it can get, I think it's useful. I think there is one side of it where you have to do a bit, a lot of a, interrogation to see how some of them are very gimmicky if that makes sense and you know i i, I don't know what the uh, what the numbers actually mean i gotta say i haven't really properly assessed those at, at, at the moment um there are other things like the leomo system which helps you out with your biomechanics um and that's great that's almost like could be the next step in bike fitting because 
what I do is a, a dynamic bike fit, but it's on a static train. It wouldn't be great to know what that look that position looks like after three, four hours on the road, you know. But these are all new data fields that at the moment I don't think anybody really fully understands and 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 therefore the interpretation and what it means and the adjustment is a little bit mixed and matched well i don't know what you think michael you probably have more of an idea than me but well honestly no i mean i've talked with some of like off air with some of the manufacturers but i've never used uh, one of them and Mm -hmm. i talked with uh, with other coaches a bit about it again off air but no i I don't have a a much better picture myself to be honest and I, i wouldn't be able to to provide a useful comments because i don't think my knowledge is deep enough so that's that's why, why i'm always interested in asking people that might know no and that's and that's a good and, and that's a really good point is that I, I i can tell you some of the best and um, pro teams in the world do aerodynamics very very poorly <laughs> and then and i honestly think there are amateurs out there some of your listeners even who have a much more methodical and uh science-based but you know a reason-based approach and can get much better gains you know um so i wouldn't technology is always great but cycling is one of those sports that because you can measure so many things people like to measure them (laughs) yeah compared to say swimming or running in some ways so we can measure a lot but Data doesn't equal wisdom, and uh, or you know, it's you know, doesn't necessarily improve you knowing something unless you know what it means and how you manipulate it. So, I couldn't agree more. And you know, I, I remember getting very excited the first time I ever went to a wind tunnel. And I can tell you what, that excitement was gone after two days because it's a very long, very boring process. <laughs> and you know what? When something's long and boring, it normally means it's quite hard to do. <laughs> so, so I can tell you, you know, to actually know what is a difference in that space of time or what will be a performance difference, it's very different with kit and technique. You know, you can test kit all day long. It's not going to get tired, is it, and stuff. But with a moving person, as per usual with human beings, the answer is very – there is no huge black and white. It's generally grey, but that's because we're incredibly complex animals with lots of different variables. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, but I think it's great that people are trying to help people understand what they're doing more. For me, the jury's still out on how I would use them. Yeah, I think similarly to what you said with, uh, like, a day in the bike, uh, in the wind tunnel only gives you the opportunity to really assess two or three positions because you have, uh, you need to, you need to uh, distinguish the signal from noise. You need to figure out what the measurement error is. I think that's something that is easy to overlook with anything that's measured. We take a number and accept it for what it is without ever thinking about the measurement error. And I think that's something that when people start using these, uh, these sensors that they need to be very careful about and, but not drawing to grand conclusions of anything without actually thinking about how how accurate that might be and how how repeatable the measurement is and so on. So uh, I'm sure people will start to start to figure those things out eventually. But but that measurement error is something that that I think is always important when it comes to anything that we're actually measuring. I think you're absolutely right, and that's what what the um, the aerodynamics would call you is get, getting out of the noise, and that's what they spend nearly the whole life doing is. Get understanding what is noise which is just as you say measurement error and what is actually a difference and um yeah it could be that these new pieces of kit can measure dice but the noise is so huge that you have to be you know like you say do a lot of tests and, <laughs> and 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 you might have to start almost having a mini weather station with you at the same time to try and control some of the variables but yeah you're absolutely right it it normally in life if something is um sounds too good to be true normally is isn't it <laughs> 
So, so on the topic of tech, uh, final mm. question. Uh, you mentioned a few of the things already that you use in sort of your tech stack when you do bike fits. Can you just uh, list the things that you use uh, just out of curiosity? Oh, so right. Um, my my technology based. Um, mil, um, I've had a long and successful relationship using Retool because we started using that in my BC Sky days. Um, but again, it's just it's just my measuring tape, you know. Uh, and how you interpret that data is the most important thing. Um, I do like the GBMI saddle pressure device. Again, I wouldn't base anybody's fit on change it or change it about anyone's position or fit based upon one metric. So we have Retool, which measures you and. And quite a nicely and neatly will digitally measure your bike as well. That's really important. I have to understand where your position is. So that digitally does that. And then we have saddle pressure. And we bring all those. And then I have um, my physiotherapy. I suppose my, my kit is myself, my you know, 20 years as a physio and understanding what that means in terms of uh, physical performances and limitations. So I use that assessment and uh, it's the goal orientating process. So what, what, you know, what do you want out of it? What's your aspiration and how do we get to that? And then um, the flow of that, everybody who comes to see me leaves with a plan and that plan um, is followed by, you get all the reports from the reads or the jet salad, but we make a personalized plan, which is this is what we want to do. Sometimes that has more to do with you. So most of the time it has a quite a lot to do with the bike, which people really like. So that's more instant. So yeah, um, that, that's, um, that's my, that's the main tools within my, and of course video and what, you know, we can add those sort of things in there. We also have an incredible foot referral network and I, I really should mention them in over my years in sports medicine, you know, some things can be solved through position, I think, and other times people present and they have very real problems. And we, we have, a field of experts um, who are so great that we can refer to and often i think that's the problem within some of your ride listeners may have had a talking more away from bifer here may have an issue that nobody seems to be able to get to the bottom of and sometimes it because they can't get to the bottom of it but it does frustrate me when people have been poorly assessed and haven't got a working diagnosis of an issue that they can believe in you know and that's what we can help out with sometimes as well in our clinic and we because we tend to be higher end and see people uh, yeah yeah that's great to have that referral network absolutely and uh, i guess that's it for the bike fit questions unless do you have anything you want to add before we move into the to rapid fire questions anything that we missed that uh, would be important to to get covered here um nope i think that's about it (laughs) that's it okay we covered it good good job us so rapid fire questions and take one sentence to answer these no more the first one is what's your favorite book book blog or resource related to uh, cycling or endurance sports or physiotherapy basically your field of expertise I get your favorite book uh, would be Supple Leopard by Kelly Starrett. Absolutely brilliant resource. Anyone who wants to make themselves more flexible, better go and see that guy. And his uh, online stuff's brilliant as well. Great. And what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment? Uh, my bike. <laughs> Which bike is it? What are you riding? I shouldn't say that name brands and everything. Um, I just have a very, very, um, I have a few bikes, obviously, <laughs> but um, I, I just have a really, it's a British brand, um, t- uh, Titanium, because it rains so much in Manchester. That's brilliant. <laughs> just oh, come on, name, name, name the brand. It's not, a, it's, it's uh, not necessarily a, it's, it's just a oh, personal anecdote. Oh, <laughs> sorry, I got it. It's my local bike shop. It's a, that was a Sabbath bike. And then I, I ride a specialized, um, what are they, their gravel version. That's fantastic and i'm trying out an electric bike at the moment which are road bikes which i think that's going to be really exciting how electric bikes are going to democratize cycling you know all the research out there it's not cheating you generally cycle further more and i think they're going to be that's going to be really interesting moving forward 
Yeah, very cool. And finally, what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? I didn't even think about this question. Hold on. Sharp him, take a breath. Um, personal habit. It's a really good question. Um, I like to know everything before I make a decision, which means that I really, really, really do my research on stuff. And I really hate BS being spouted at me. So I kind of like that. So um, that I think being like that um, often can maybe, you know, put, I put a lot of effort into finding out what will work. And for example, I only do maximum three bikes of fits a day, normally two, because I really want to do them well rather than poorly and see them back again and disappointed. So it takes a hell of a lot, a lot of effort that, but I think it's the right way to do it. Yeah, that's a great answer. So finally, tell the listeners where they can find you online on social media and uh, physically at to your lab when <laughs> we get past these coronavirus times. Oh yes, a terrible. So we we're, we're based in Manchester in the UK, where the uh, um, I'm here because that's where the British Cycling was based. We're not very far from the Velodrome. It's uh, it's actually in a place called the MIP, the M I H P Manchester Institute of Health and Performance, which is next to, to Manchester City, one of the biggest world's biggest football clubs. Uh, it's basically almost like their private hospital, but it's open to mere mortals. Has it's a hospital with performance settings, so it's a great setting to do that. It has an altitude chamber, an environmental chamber, anything you want MRIs. But we have a room in there where we can do. Uh, work our sort of magic um that what would be useful maybe for the listeners is the website is filbert innovation but there's a youtube channel as well where i try and do a bit like the book give away free advice that can help people because obviously people who are living far across the world especially in these times not everybody's going to come to manchester if people are local in britain they want to come that's brilliant but with the youtube channel we're really trying to give a um, little bit snippets out of there are well, we, around about what we talked about today, sometimes a bit more depth, but visually. And um, that's a really good place to go. So again, Filbert Innovation, YouTube channel. Thank you. And on that note, I actually just remembered one question that I wanted to ask that I forgot about. So, And I think it's very important. So we'll get to it now. And that is uh, for listeners around the world, how do you sort of find a good bike fitter? Like Because I mean, as you said, it's uh, it's not about the tools; it's about the person doing the fit, and so on. And uh, and it could be a bit hit and miss, uh, I think. And uh, I struggle a little bit here in Portugal uh, sometimes with with that. And yeah. in the UK, you have a much better situation, I'm aware. But but generally, what are the things to look for in, when you're looking for getting a bike fit? Yeah, and and that's a really good question, Michael. There's, unlike say physiotherapy um which is a profession like being a doctor well bifit is still relatively new so it's, it's not really a profession there are a lot of good people in there trying to make it uh, more professional i think going to the there is a website called the ibfi the Bi- international bike fitters institute and they try to register people um that, that, and but you know what i would do is i would ring up the person who you're thinking to go to see with a bike fit, explain what you want out of the bike fit to them, and then see what they say to you. And I think most people will get a feel for whether it's going to be successful or not. Ask them some hard questions, you know, how are you going to assess my position? What tools will you use? What will I leave with? You know, what's your follow up? Uh, you know, and uh, I think if you ask those questions, and I get people ring up and they say, you know, uh, ask me those questions and I most tend to book in you know and, and you can get a feel for that person it would be the same as a physio I often get asked uh, you know how do you know who's a good physio you, to, to, I often say you should believe in what they their diagnosis if you don't believe the diagnosis then they're then there's not much chance of success, even if they're right. <laughs> but if, you, if you've if seen them three times and it's not getting better and you don't understand why it's not getting better, then 
and they can't explain to us why he's came, but I would change physiotherapist because it's all about having confidence in the person who's doing that assessment with you. So if you give them a call, a call before any decent bite fish, you'll be able to yeah, have a good conversation with you. It doesn't have to be hours and hours, but you should um, believe it. And human beings are good at sussing that stuff out. Yeah, that's, again, really great advice. We've had a lot of that today. So uh, really, uh, thank you, Phil. I appreciate taking the time and uh, I will talk to you again soon. Okay, thanks very much, Michael. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. You can find the show notes as usual on scientifictriathlon.com and we'll link to Phil's website and also to the cycling archives on that triathlon show uh, in those show notes so that you can uh, get some uh, additional related listening. On Thursday, there's another Q&A coming out. And then next Monday, I have an interview lined up with Dr. Margot Mountjoy on the topic of REDS, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, previously known as the Female Athlete Triad, but actually extended to REDS because it is not only uh, a relevant uh, syndrome for females, but equally for male athletes. I want to remind you once again that uh, I have created a free COVID-19 training plan consisting of bike and run and strength and conditioning of three different levels. So a seven hour per week version, a 12 hour per week version version, and a 17 hour per per week version. And you can simply choose all of them and see which one will fit you best. Or if you know that you're generally around... Uh, close to one of those uh, volume levels you can pick that one and either add a little bit of volume or remove a little bit of volume as you see fit Uh, and i hope that uh, this the simple purpose with this plan is to help as many athletes as possible get a little bit more out of their training in these uh, times of uh, pools being closed etc hopefully that won't go on for too long but uh, who knows who knows and uh, knowing fully well that uh, many athletes are not able to to have a coach, which is obviously the best option. But for those of you that are self-coached, this might be a great option, even if you don't plan on following the the program really as is. You can still get some knowledge about the structure of the plan that can inspire and inform your own planning. Or you can simply get some inspiration for different workouts that you might want to try out. So I think it's worth giving it a look, even if you uh, are happy planning your own training. Big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test and get 15% off your order of electrolyte products with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And big thanks to Roka that you can find on roka.com forward slash TTS. On that page, you will get a 20% discount code valid for your entire order of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, uh, and high-performance eyewear, including the newly launched Matador sunglasses. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.